Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Thanks for joining us for week four in a series that we're doing on the book of Daniel. A few weeks ago, we saw that the true God is a God who reveals mysteries. Last week, we saw that he's a God who provides rescue. And today, we're going to see that he's a God who rules. But in order to get there, we need to first talk about the goat. It's an acrostic for the greatest of all time. And if you're a sports fan like me, you're probably familiar with people debating the GOAT. Who is the greatest of all time? I mean, when we talk about basketball's GOAT, uh, most people would look to Michael Jordan. I mean, six NBA championships, five MVP, MVPs. I mean, just the most prolific player of our generation. Um, When we talk about hockey, the GOAT is clearly Wayne Gretzky, who led the NHL, leads the NHL in all-time scoring. Uh, When you talk about baseball, it's a little bit more difficult. There are so many different positions, and um, some people would say Babe Ruth, or Hank Aaron, or Ty Cobb, or Cy Young, or Ted Williams, Uh, but there's a lot of discussion about who the greatest of all time is when it comes to baseball. When it comes to NFL quarterbacks, there's really no debate. Uh, John Elway is clearly the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Oh, do you think I was going to say Tom Brady? No way. John Elway in the orange and blue, baby. The greatest of all time. I mean, think about that. That's quite a definitive statement, isn't it? There's never been anyone better. And it's a statement that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would have very um, uh, intently and without any qualifications attributed to himself. I mean, he would have looked in the mirror and said, I am the greatest of all time. And he could have stood on his palace balcony and looked out over his kingdom. He would have seen that it was fortified with a few different walls to protect him and make him feel safe. Uh, He could have gone for a walk and he could have seen the different hanging gardens that he had built. Um, The Greeks said that they were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. For all intents and purposes, he was the greatest of at least his generation. But if you would have asked him, he would have said that he was the greatest of all time. He was the goat. (laughs) I think if we're honest, we'd probably, each one of us would say that there's some desire in us to be great. I'd actually argue that that desire comes from God. Uh, That desire to be great is because we are created in the image of God. Not only that, we're created to play a part in the story of God. But in so many ways, uh, sin has captured that desire to be a part of God's story, to be great in God's story, and it's twisted it and suggested to us that we need to be great in our own story. 
we're not designed, we would say, in our sin nature to play a, a supporting role in God's story. We want to play the starring role in our own story. See, sin has done something to us. It has curved us in on ourselves, as the theologians would say, that we are in cravatus in se. It's Latin for turned or curved inward on oneself. It's a phrase that describes a life lived inward rather than a life lived outward or a life lived upward. As the Apostle Paul would say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, um, to put off selfish ambition. That's really hard for us because we've all got a little bit of goatness in us, don't we? See, today I want to show you what happens when we live with the weight of trying to be the greatest, the greatest of all time, or we might just use the term living with pride, having a heart that's filled with pride. And in order to do this, we're going to look to Nebuchadnezzar to be our guide. In Daniel chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, listen to the way this reads. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. See, one of the things that we're supposed to see here is that Nebuchadnezzar has prosperity, but he's using his prosperity to feed his ease rather than to provide provision for all of his kingdom. It's a a subtle nuance in the text, but one that we are uh, intended to pick up on. Here's the way that the verse continues. Verse 5, it says, And I saw a dream that made me afraid. Time out. If this sounds familiar, it's because it should. Chapter 2 is based around a dream as well. But this dream, like chapter 2, makes Nebuchadnezzar really afraid. And he says, As I lay In bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they should make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So catch this. Nebuchadnezzar's fear leads to a decree. And because he's in control, he can do that. Whenever we sense fear rising up in our soul, we attempt to control Okay? And because he's king and has the power, he's able to do that. Now, for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar goes through the motions of having some other magicians come and try to interpret the dream. And then finally, sort of the light switch goes on and he goes, well, maybe I should ask Daniel, that guy who not only interpreted the dream before, but told me what it was. Um, if this sort of jars any memories of the story of Joseph in Genesis, it's because it's intended to. The the Bible is brilliant literature, and it's echoing back to that story when Joseph interprets dreams and is then forgotten. Well, let me give you a brief summary of the dream. I'm going to summarize it, uh, give you the point, and then in the rest of our teaching time, we're going to go and explore the dream in more detail. See, here's the dream. The dream is about Nebuchadnezzar, and he had a vision of a massive tree that was flourishing, and then it was cut down. Daniel's going to make clear to Nebuchadnezzar that he is that tree, and then he's going to say that he's going to have some sort of psychological breakdown or mental illness where he's going to go and live outside, and he's going to be like a beast of the field. (laughs) Sweet dreams, Nebuchadnezzar. 
And after telling the king this dream, he calls on Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel does, to repent. But Nebuchadnezzar does not take that offer. And listen to the way his pride, his goatness, if you will, just oozes out of him. At the end of the 12 months, this is verse 29. Sorry, you can jump down there with me. At the end of 12 months, so he gets a year after Daniel calls him to repent. He was walking along the roof of the palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? I... Me, my, I mean, in so many ways, he's the me monster and God is good on his word. Just like he told Nebuchadnezzar he was going to take him down, he does. We see Proverbs 16 verse 18 play out right before our eyes. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And he falls. But Nebuchadnezzar eventually comes to his senses. I mean, listen to the way that the chapter ends. Look at verse 37 with me. He says this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. Now, this is ironic because this is the exact opposite of the way that Nebuchadnezzar has been living. uh, Right and just. He says, and he continues, and those who walk in pride, he probably would have raised his hand and said, that's me. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I mean, talk about a 180 degree turn. He goes from celebrating all that he's built to worshiping the true builder of it all. He goes from prideful and arrogant to a posture of humility. Which begs the question, what did this dream say? And what happened after to lead such a a prideful person to get so low before God? Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I think if you were to ask Nebuchadnezzar what he learned from this dream and then subsequently what happened afterwards, he would have said, that's what I've learned. God is able to humble the prideful and exalt those who are humble. It's really interesting because back in Nebuchadnezzar's day, humility was not seen as a virtue at all. See, we have Jesus to thank for the fact that humility is seen as a virtue. But in the ancient world, it was seen as a weakness. See, Nebuchadnezzar echoes what centuries later would become part of Jesus's central teaching. And I'd invite you to write this down today because it's going to be the main idea that we're going to circle our hearts and our minds around today. The path to flourishing is found in the posture of humility. That's what we're going to see. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is going to teach us. The path to flourishing as a human being is found in the posture of humility. In fact, the scriptures would go so far as to say that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. God opposes. He is actively against those who are prideful. But he gives grace. He empowers those who are humble. I think Andrew Murray captured it really well when he said this, here is the path to higher life. 
down, lower, down. Just as water always seeks to fill the lowest place, so the moment God finds men abased and empty, His glory and power flow in to exalt and to bless. Yeah, God gives grace to those who are humble. He gives grace to the weak and makes them strong. See, pride is like a trying to canoe uphill. But humility is like putting up your sail and allowing the wind of God's grace to move you and energize you and empower you. See, here's the deal, friends. Here's the deal. Each one of us will live our lives with one of two basic postures. Either we will be filled with pride, where we'll look at me, myself, and I, the things we've made, the things that we've done, and how good we are, or we'll be humble, we'll be low, we'll be open to God and open to His work. See, see, that position will either posture you for abundance or deficit. It will either posture you for life or for death. That posture, either pride or humility, and I do believe it's one of the two, either pride or humility may be the most important thing about us. So let's learn from Nebuchadnezzar and his dream about how to be people who live with humility. So let's drive into the content of this dream so we can learn what it looks like to live with a posture of humility because embedded within this dream are a few invitations that I want to draw out for us. So in chapter four, the first thing that happens is Nebuchadnezzar uh, tells the dream and then we have Daniel retell it and interpret it. And so we're going to pick up with Daniel's retelling and interpretation. It begins in verse 19. And here's how the scriptures read, Daniel chapter 4, beginning in 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. I love Daniel's combination of compassion and truthfulness. He sympathizes with the king, but he also is going to speak truth into the king's life. Verse 20, the tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven, it was visible to the end of the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which food was food for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. Now notice the implication for Nebuchadnezzar's prosperity is that it would be, it would, it was designed to be provision for all, food for all, shade for all, benefit for all. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar has his feet kicked up in his palace, just enjoying his prosperity. Verse 22, it is you, O king, who have grown to become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the 
ends of the earth. Don't you think at this point Nebuchadnezzar would have gone, amen to that. I am the goat. I'm, I'm great. Verse 23. And because the king saw a, a watcher, a holy one, an angel, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down this tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its root in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. Chop down the tree and destroy it. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has already seen a vision that included transitions of power, one kingdom to the next. But this transition is more personal. Uh, It's speaking directly of him. And given his prolific power and his reign, Nebuchadnezzar could have never imagined a day where he would not rule. Here's what humility gets. Here's what humility understands. Humility understands that life is temporary. It's not permanent. It's temporary. It's not permanent. And it's easy to go through, and I'd invite you to write that down, by the way. It's easy to go through the motions of life, assuming it's always going to be that way, this way. In fact, I think it's good for us every once in a while to remember that there was a company called Blockbuster. Uh, Remember that? (laughs) I mean, I can remember when Kelly and I were first married, one of our favorite things to do on a Friday night was drive down to Blockbuster and walk through the video store and pick out a movie to come back and watch at home. I mean, in 2004, Blockbuster grossed $5.9 billion in earnings. They had over 9,000 stores globally. And by 2010, they had declared bankruptcy. And in 2013, they closed their last store. And can you imagine going from $5.9 billion to completely closed in less than a decade? I mean, Blockbuster stands to forever remind us that things don't last forever. You know, there's a wisdom in recognizing that this life is, is like a vapor, This life is really short. The psalmist in Psalm 90 verse 10 says this. He writes, So teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. See, when we recognize that life is temporary, it actually leads to uh, wisdom in living. And I think I want to point out two uh, things for us to recognize under that banner. First, the season that you're in right now. Right now, right this very moment, is temporary. If you're a young parent like me, you won't always have the joy of chaos at bedtime, of frustration around distance learning, of fights between siblings. And listen, I'm with you. In this moment, it seems absolutely insurmountable, insurmountable shenanigans in the Paulson household most evenings. But at some point, at some point, we will look back and see that it was pure gift. We will. And when we are aware that this season is temporary, we also become more aware of its blessings. But we we should also not lose sight of the fact that life in general, 
is a gift. It's, it's temporary. Our life on this earth will one day come to an end. And when we realize that it's fragile, we will be far more intentional. I say this not to be morbid, but to just call you to be aware of all the blessings that are around you today and to live into this moment that you have right now, to come alongside of you like Mr. Keating came alongside of the Dead Poets Society and to encourage you, carpe diem, seize the day, but don't seize it for yourself. Seize it for the things that will last forever. Seize it to love. Seize it to build into people. Seize it to cultivate relationships. Seize it to live for the glory of God. So the first thing that we see is that humility has a posture of understanding that life is temporary, it's not permanent. And the second thing we see comes out of verses 24 and 25. Listen to this. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you understand and know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Daniel says, you're going to go crazy until you know two things. First, here's the first thing. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men. This is one of the major themes in Daniel chapter 4. It's listed in verse 17, verse 25, and verse 32. And it may seem like we look out and it may look like there are people ruling, but what Daniel's drawing out and what this dream is drawing out, that underneath it all, it's God's gift to them, it's God's provision to them, and it's God's calling for them temporarily for a time. God is behind it all. In fact, the Apostle Paul would write this. He would say, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 36. It's all his. But he temporarily lets people manage some of his stuff. Would you write this down? Humility recognizes that influence is stewardship. It's not ownership. Influence is stewardship, it's not ownership. What we think we own is actually on loan. See, this word kingdoms, I think, could maybe throw us off a little bit because we would go, well, we don't live in a kingdom right now and we don't know any kings, so is this applicable today? See, I would say that each one of us have jurisdiction over some sort of a kingdom. A kingdom is simply where we get our way. It's where we want, where what we want to have happen, happens. Some of you may go, well, that happens in very few places in my life. I get it. For some of you, you're CEOs at a company, and that's sort of your mini kingdom. Others are maybe directors of a department, and that's your kingdom. Some of you manage a classroom, and that's your kingdom. Others own a business, and that's your kingdom. Others manage a household, and that's your kingdom. Um, The kids that are listening, you have a room, and that's your little kingdom. All of us have bodies that we get to choose what happens to and what we feed with. But behind it all, Daniel would say, behind it all, this dream would say, God is 100% in charge. He's 100% sovereign. I love the way that the theologian Abraham Kuyper put it when he said this. 
There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. That's mine. So here's the question. How do we manage God's stuff? How do we become good stewards rather than taking a posture of ownership? Well, look at verse 27. I think uh, this dream starts to give us some hints. It says this, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. How do we operate as stewards, not owners? We honor the intent of the owner. And here God would say, well, live with righteousness. Treat, treat people right and have mercy towards those who are oppressed. Those wouldn't be two words that people would have used to describe Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, he was a bloodthirsty king. And if he didn't get his way right away, heads, quite literally, would roll. And see, Nebuchadnezzar just would have been in line with most of the kings of his day. In fact, at the beginning of Plato's Republic, Socrates argued that justice is whatever the person or people with the most power want. And they always want what is to their advantage. But friends, the way of God, the way of Jesus is completely different. The reason that Nebuchadnezzar has been given power is so that he could do good. The reason that you have influence over whatever kingdom you have influence over is not to lord it over other people, but to lift other people up, to use the influence that you have to advocate on behalf of the oppressed, on behalf of those who need mercy. And we see people living against this stream in every corner of our society, don't we? Whether it's Hollywood executives who use their position in order to gain sexual favors, or whether it's business executives that use their position to line their own pockets at the expense of their employees, or even their investors, or even sometimes religious leaders, pastors that take advantage of the people under them. If you have been loaned influence, power, and authority, it is for the purpose of doing good. True leadership in the home, in the business place, or in politics is servant leadership. And that's what humility recognizes. Humility recognizes that we are mere stewards, not owners. So the first thing we saw in Daniel chapter 4 verse 25 is that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men. And then the second thing we see, and it's going to feed right into this posture of humility, and it says, and gives it to whom he will. So here's what Daniel's saying. Daniel is saying, and you can write this down, that humility acknowledges that prosperity is given, it's not earned. You're in the position you're in, whatever that position is. A mom, a dad, a CEO, an electrician, a teacher, a business person, whatever position you're in, you're there because God has placed you there. 
And some of you might think, well, no, it was because of my hard work and my ingenuity and all of these things that I did. And and I would just gently push back and say, well, where'd you get your ingenuity? Where'd you you get your body? (laughs) It's all a gift. And if we go back far enough, God is at the beginning. He's the one who is the giver of the gift. In fact, did you know that when your parents got together to make you, you know what I mean, um, that there were 250 million sperm swimming towards that egg, and the one that got to the egg first eventually became you. I mean, what are the chances? Like, when we really step back and we look at life, we have to see it as a gift. And maybe, just maybe, if all of life is a gift, then maybe elevated levels of influence and prosperity are given by grace as well. Like, what if we really believed that? What if we really believed that? I think there's a few things we might do. We might be patient and wait for God to establish us rather than to war to make a name, right? Like we might wait for God to promote us rather than fighting like we have to do it all on our own, on our timeline and with our power. Maybe we wouldn't try to cut corners in order to get ahead. Maybe we could just settle in and rest and trust that the same God that brought us here will also move us there. But the second thing I think we would do if we really believed that prosperity was a gift, not earned, I think we would take note of the things in our life that we do have. And instead of living with entitlement, I think we'd start to live with a deeper sense of gratitude. See, entitlement lives under the auspice, I deserve this or I've earned this and why don't I have more? But gratitude that is freedom to the human soul recognizes that all of life is gift. Yeah, God gives it to whom he will. And look at the fourth picture of humility with me. It says this in verse 27, and we've already read this, but I want to point out a little bit of a different angle to it. It says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. So Daniel's saying, here's what I'm suggesting. Nebuchadnezzar, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Here's what Daniel's saying. Nebuchadnezzar, it's not too late to change. You don't have to keep living as the goat. Uh, The goat that's eventually going to become like the ox, right? Living like a beast in a field. You don't have to keep going, living, uh, beating your chest, me, mine, I. You can turn and you can start to care for other people. But there's this moment where he has to make a decision. Which direction am I going to go? Am I going to hold on to my posture of pride or am I going to embrace a new posture of humility? And see, I think, and I invite you to write this down, that humility is embodied in honest self-reflection, not ardent self-protection. See, self-reflection is able to, a person that has self-reflection is able to ask questions. Uh, They're able to learn from people. They're able to learn from people that they may not even agree with on everything. Uh, Self-reflection is embodied in a person that asks questions. I mean, that's what it means to have childlike faith, to know that we haven't arrived, that there's still a journey in front of us. See, pride beats their chest and thinks, I have arrived, but humility, oh no, there's so much more 
to learn. Maybe some other self-reflective questions might be, am I able to celebrate the success of other people? Can I acknowledge good wherever I find it, even if it's on the difference, a different side of the aisle or in a different theological camp than mine? Or maybe even, here's a good self-reflection question, am I able to admit my failure? Am I able to admit when I'm wrong? There's a freedom in being okay with not getting it right every time. That's the freedom of humility. And that's the invitation that is in this dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. So maybe the most humble thing we can do today is repent. Change our mind. Change the way that we're viewing the world. See, humility is actually God's design. It's the Jesus way. And because it's God's design, uh, we start to go crazy when we don't live in alignment with it. That's exactly what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 31 to 33 with me. Here's here's how they read. While the words were still in the king's mouth, this is when he's beating his chest, admiring all of his work and his kingdom. There fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it's spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles as feathers and his nails were like the bird's claws. Now, before you write this off as being some myth or just made up fictional story, there actually is a psychological condition called bone therapy, and it is embodied with people who live like an ox, do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's going to happen to you if you live with pride. But what I am suggesting is that pride puts a weight on our shoulders that we were never designed to carry. It messes with our head and it messes with our heart and we start to live out of alignment with God's design for how we were created to live. I mean, think about it. It's a lot of work to make sure that the world revolves around you. I think pride is like a Trojan horse that gets into our soul and our heart. It seems to be friendly. It affirms things we want to believe are true. I deserve. I've earned. It's about me. But eventually, those things wear on us. That weight weighs us down. And so it might show up in lashing out in anger towards a spouse or a friend or a grocery store worker or somebody in a car that you've never met because they wrong you. It may look like a relationship that falters because your needs aren't getting met in the way that you want them to. It may look like a really critical outlook on life because people aren't doing things the way that you think they should be doing them. That's the weight of pride 
weighing you down. And Nebuchadnezzar at the very end of this passage gives us a picture of what true freedom looks like. Look at it with me in verse 34. At the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. So he gets his eyes off of himself in cravatas in say, and he puts them on the God of heaven. And he says, and when I did that, my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom, his kingdom, his kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar saying, not mine, endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? What does Nebuchadnezzar do when his reason or sanity, according to the NIV, returns? Well, he worships. He he turns back to God. When his mind is in the right place, his worship is rightly focused. And one of the most freeing things that you and I can do is recognize that there is a God. And are you ready for it? Ready for it? And it's not us. And it's not us. I mean, this week, when you don't get your way, what if you just repeated to yourself, there is a God and it's not me. (laughs) See, humility isn't viewing ourselves as small. It's recognizing that we are small. It's not some sort of mind game that we play. It's a recognition that there is a creator God. He spoke it all into existence and he sustains it all by his voice. He is the one who keeps the earth in motion. He is the one who sustains life. It's not you, it's him. And when we acknowledge that, that we are small, we can acknowledge also that we are greatly loved by the king of it all. See friends, each one of us will either live our lives with a posture of pride or a posture of surrender, but it will only be one of those two things. And one of those postures, a posture of pride, puts us in opposition. God is actively against us puts us in opposition to God. The other positions us to receive and to be empowered by God's grace. The posture you embrace may be the most important thing about you. And see, the pressure is off. The world is already revolving around someone, and it's not you. Creation already sings the praise of one. God is on his throne, and he is not inviting anybody to join him on it. See, I'd invite you to write this down as we close our time today. Humility liberates us from competing with God, which is what pride actually is, competing with God, and it frees us to receive life from him. There's only one goat, and his name is Jesus. He's actually not just the goat, he's also the lamb. As John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was this goat, this lamb, 
who showed us what true humility looks like. When he got down on his hands and knees and washed his disciples' feet, it was this goat, this lamb, that showed us what humility looked like, emptying himself of all that it meant to be God, taking the very nature of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's this God who calls us to live in his way, with his heart, knowing that life is temporary, knowing that influence is a stewardship, understanding that prosperity is given, and that change along the way will be required. So as we close today, would you take some time and just ask God, what's the posture of my soul? Is it one of pride or is it one of humility? Let's pray. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who live with humility, the way that you taught us to live, following your example of servant leadership. So Lord, remind us that this life is like a vapor that, that, that we don't get to control the when and the how. God, Lord, remind us that you choose who prospers and when and why, and you give us the calling to use all of our influence for good. Remind us of that. And then, Lord, where there's ways that we're off in our thinking, in our lives, would you call on us to repent, invite us to repent, let us hear your voice. And then, Father, I pray that we would be people who choose your way and your heart. Lord, help us to live in a posture of humility, recognizing that you are the one. You are the greatest of all time. You alone are God. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.